Well, would you please stand with me to read God's word together? We will be reading Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you, lenders. You know, we've all heard the saying that actions speak louder than words. And I think that this passage uh, gives us uh, evidence for such a statement as that, that this unnamed woman who doesn't say a word wins the day. You know, our passage today really is going to hinge on a contrast, a contrast between the two main figures in the passage. That is, on the one hand, you have Simon the Pharisee. We get his name down there in verse 40, Simon the Pharisee. And on the other hand, the woman uh, introduced simply as the woman of the city who was a sinner. Say, of the two of them, who do you think would be better at teaching us something about God. You say, surely we'd pick the Pharisee, right? The man who's a professional clergyman who knew his Bible well. Surely he's going to help us understand God, not the sinner. But conversely, what we're going to see is actually it's this sinful woman who wins the day. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a few moments looking at Simon the Pharisee. Then we'll uh, spend a, a moment looking at the woman and then the parable and the, the resolution, if you will, how Jesus concludes the matter. So first, what do we know about Simon? Now, he's a member of this class called the Pharisees, so you can't help but come across this group as you read the Gospels, right? We have four biographies of Jesus in the, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and inevitably... Uh, the teachings of Jesus, uh, they're pushed off against that of the Pharisees often, that they don't come out uh, very strong in the Bible. And why is that? Say, Pharisees, the word probably means 
separate ones. Uh, the best we can understand, Pharisee comes from being separate. Why were they separate? Because they spent a lot of time uh, digging into and trying to parse out what the Hebrew Bible meant. Uh, that they would have been uh, well-versed in what we call the Old Testament. They would have known it. They would have followed it very diligently. Some of the debates that we have from the rabbinic texts, it's hard not to, I mean, almost comical at to the, the level they would go to to make sure that they were obeying God's law. So they'd create rules to protect the rules. That You know, Simon is in this class. He knew his Bible well. Clearly a man of standing, that he's able to have a house, that he's able to hold a dinner party. Say a house like this would have had a courtyard. He's a man of stature. He's in the religious group. We could say, you know, he's in the establishment. And we can tell a bit about his heart, can't we? Have a look at verse 39. As this scene unfolds, you know, evidently he's intrigued by Jesus as being... Uh, as being an important teacher, a, a rabbi. So you would have had somebody over he's going to t- teaching interesting things. But verse 39 tells us about Simon's understanding of what it means to be a religious person. You see, a real religious person, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, if he really understood God, then he'd know a sinner when he sees one. He said, how could that be the case? He said, how do you know a sinner when you see one? Well, obviously, it's by making a superficial judgment, right? So you see how a person looks. You know, maybe they're a bit disheveled. Uh, They don't quite fit the part. They don't, uh, you know, understand the the right things to do and the right things to wear. Or maybe, you know, is this woman, the the reputation goes out. But he said, if Jesus was a real religious person, I mean, if he really understood God, he'd be the kind that's able to point out the most sinful people and be very clear, say, this is the right kind of person and this is the wrong kind of person. But also, in line with that, that if Jesus was really a religious person, that he wouldn't associate with sinners. What do you make of religious people? Is your view, you know, a lot of times being in the pastorate, you know, say, I get this reaction all the time. Well, he's, he's one of those holy guys. You know, he's a holy man. He works at the church. He's different. You know, as if the idea of if you're a godly person, you don't associate with certain types of people. So it goes all the way back to the first century, right? This is Simon's view that if Jesus was really in line with God, he'd be able to tell by looking and say, this is the wrong kind of person and this is the right kind of person. And he wouldn't hang out with those sinners, Say also, we learn a bit about Simon as a host. You notice we have to jump to 44 and 46. Simon doesn't offer basic hospitality. He said, I don't want to make too big of a point of this, but you say, you have somebody over your house now. Say, my guess is that you have a, a, a series of things that you do that are common courtesies when you host. It's just in any culture you do. So somebody comes to my house, I offer to take their jackets if they're wearing one, and I hang that up. I, I, I offer them a drink. Uh, I then invite them in to sit down on my couch. There's a certain kind of set of things you do when you host a party, that, and, and Simon here fails on all those accounts. You see, in the first century Mediterranean world, what you would have done is you invite a guest, especially the guest of honor, in this case, Jesus over. You say you would have offered him a bowl of water. Why? Because they're wearing sandals and their feet are dusty. So you give them a bowl of water to clean their feet. You give them a kiss, you know, ancient equivalent of of the handshake. You say, well, Dr. Fauci certainly wouldn't like that if we start kissing each other. Hey, I want to bring back the holy kiss. But anyway, uh, so, you know, you kiss each other uh, and then you, you know, would have anointed, you know, christened his head with, uh, you know, your guest's head with ointment or something like that. So you say this very normal progression versus 44 to 46, Simon kind of inexplicably uh, fails to do that. Say, I fear 
I fear that Simon is a lot, uh, there are a lot of Simons around. Those who are kind of intrigued by Jesus as an important teacher of history, some of the stuff he says is interesting. It'd be very good to have a meal with Jesus, but we really don't want to go out of our way to respect him for who he is. You see, also, I think we probe this a bit deeper when this scene unfolds. You see, Simon would have understood that God forgives. He's a Pharisee. Of course, he knew the Bible well. So you think about the passage that we read in our communal reading, right? Exodus 34 talks about how God offers forgiveness, or Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that so far our transgressions are forgiven for us. So the Old Testament, right, the Hebrew Bible is loads and loads of passages about how God forgives. But Simon, like many of us, he says, well, God forgives, but not for, not for those kind. Not for a woman like this. I mean, for crying out loud, this, this notorious sinner. So a lot of us say we affirm God's forgiveness, but really not for the worst among us. You see, friends, I, I fear again. You say you unpack this picture. You say, I don't know if Simon, I mean, debate can, you say, you know, how, how hard should we be on Simon? But quite frankly, he's one of those who acknowledges Jesus in some way, but is really unconverted. So I hope that's none of us, but how easy we could fall into the trap, right? Superficial judgments, that's what it means to be a religious person. We want the right kind of people here. Uh, we don't really want to, you know, go out of our way too much for Jesus. We certainly don't want to go over the top, but we'll just kind of pay him lip, lip service and see what he has to say. Say, that is not going to cut it. So Simon the Pharisee, he fails to understand real forgiveness and as we're going to see, he fails then to understand love or really what it means to encounter Jesus and the message that God has for his people who come to him. That's who Simon is. Now, what about the nameless woman? She's contrasted with this Simon. So the party takes a turn. Could you imagine? You say, this would have been quite common. Actually, people could come and stand around the courtyard. That part wasn't the problem, so they'd be eating in the courtyard. And Simon probably hosted a lot of dinner parties, and people could come in and maybe glean some of the wisdom being talked about. You say, this would be normal. Simon had many dinner parties. But there's a major disruption. You say, you could, the guests would probably be very nervous. You say, what is this, you know, this, this woman doing? I mean, she's such a distraction. You say, all of a sudden, whatever agenda Simon had for the party, you know, inquiring you know, who Jesus was or wanting to learn more of his teaching, this uh, sequence of events, what the woman does, hijacks the agenda, and no one is going to be able to get this image out of their mind. Said, I think there is some debate on this. You know, when it says the woman's a sinner, sometimes I think the Bible gives us ambiguity uh, the, the, a good way, right? That we don't want to overdefine things, kind of leaves it open. But I think that this woman was probably a prostitute. And I think the key language there is what she brings, right? An alabaster flask of ointment. That this is a very expensive nard. You say, and from extra-biblical literature, you start to gather, you say, well, this is a key tool in her trade, right? That this is what you use to freshen up between clients. That she's got this very expensive nard, and she's prearranged to bring. So this woman, whatever the case, you can say, well, I'm not sure that the exact nature of her sin, was she an adulteress, or maybe likely, as I say, a prostitute. But one thing's for sure, her reputation as a great sinner went before. That all the stuff she'd done in her life Say, everybody knew about that before they knew what kind of person she was. You say, I wonder about this woman too. That isn't it the case sometimes we know when we get to know people that the, 
bad decisions that they're making or the circumstances in which they find themselves in actually started a lot earlier with a tough set of circumstances. See, I do wonder about this woman, about her background. She just gets going down a path of making these kind of decisions. And before you know it, say her sin is so widely known that everybody knows what kind of person she is. And what she does is so incredibly distracting if you're one of these Pharisees, right? So incredibly crazy. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm with Simon, you know, one of the religious people, the educated people, say, what is this woman doing making an absolute fool of herself? That she comes up to Jesus, you know, the way that they ate in these days is you would have leaned in on your left elbow, say no chairs, right? You're down reclining on the floor, so you lean in on your left elbow so you could reach your food with your right hand and your feet would be going off away from the table. Say this is the way that you ate. So she comes up to Jesus to his feet and is so moved by his presence, so we'll get to that in a moment here, but is so moved by his presence that she starts to cry all over his feet. She then does something that no woman no respectable woman at all would, would ever have done. I mean, again, very clear. Extra biblical literature, very clear that in these days, ancient Mediterranean world say you never let your hair down in public if you're a lady. She lets down her hair and begins to clean Jesus' feet with her own hair and her tears. She then anoints his feet with this expensive nard. Say, why does this woman do this? And again, you put yourself at that party. What are you thinking? Say, I think, I know what I'm thinking. Say, this woman is absolutely out of her mind. But why does she do this? Because she's so moved at the message she had heard Jesus preach. You see, I think the thrust of the parable makes it clear that she had already had an encounter with Jesus. She had already had faith in him, faith in his message of forgiveness. Again, you think of this lady. You're trapped, aren't you? You say you have gone down a road in life where you can't go, can't turn back. You say, what am I going to do that my reputation is out there? You say, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden, right, right in your moment of great despair, you hear this new rabbi who's come on the scene, and this new rabbi is preaching that he forgives sins and can make you right with God. Say how wonderful that must have sounded to this woman. And consequently, having heard the message of forgiveness of Jesus, she tracks him down at this party. She comes and she shows him devotion. What courage this must have taken. You imagine, you say, you're trying to be a respectable person. It's a posh dinner party. But no, no one else matters to her. What she's going to do is she's going to show allegiance and devotion and respect to the one who offers forgiveness. That is the Lord Jesus. And what she does in this moment is she ends up offering the kind of hospitality that Simon did not. You say, that's the contrast there. Say, this woman not caring about what other people think, but what she cares is about showing Jesus the respect that he deserves and responding to his message of forgiveness, even for a notorious sinner like her. You know, as I read this this week, I say the, the part that convicted me most was as I asked, you know, do I ever have this kind of emotional response to what Jesus has done for me? <laughs> Not even close. Say, who am I? I'm more like Simon, you know, 
keeping it together, kind of intrigued by Jesus, somewhat of an important figure, but really I have an eye on what everybody else thinks of me, that I'm not that great of a sinner. Whereas this woman who wins the day is completely moved by what Jesus has done for her. You know, in a context like ours, you say what, I, what that caused me to do is to pray in my own life and in our church, you say maybe we could just be just a little more thankful and respond a little bit more emotionally to what Jesus has done for each of us. Say not to say that we you know, go around weeping and things like that, but to say, Lord, in our context, it's so incorrect to have any emotional response to Jesus at all. Even people talking about loving Jesus. What does that even mean? Lord, help us to understand that a bit more. So the moves we've made so far is, again, think of the passage is really drawing a contrast between Simon the Pharisee keeping Jesus at a distance and this nameless sinful woman who's received the message of forgiveness and responds to what Jesus has done for her. Now, who's going to win the day? They say, this sinful woman then, she's going to teach the religious man a lesson. And as Jesus often does, is he's going to turn to a parable from verse 30, 41, right? That a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says that's the right answer. So what's the parable saying? You say, well, you have two people that owe money. A denarius is about a day's worth of labor. So you can think somebody who owed a year and a half's worth of labor. So that's a lot for somebody who's, you know, less than two months. Now, what's remarkable about this, really, I think, what we often overlook is the fact that the moneylender canceled the debt. So we don't know any moneylenders like that. I think a lot of us, we have to say, that's the striking part of the fact that the moneylender is so kind and gracious that he actually cancels the debt of both parties. But what the parable exposes and what, what Jesus is trying to get across to Simon is what? That everyone's a debtor. Everyone's a debtor. Now, we want to play the game. You say, well, I always find somebody, or at least who I think is, you know, more of a debtor. Well, there's one of those kind. You know, that's a, that's a 500 denarius kind of person. I mean, just look at him. I mean, he's an absolute mess. I mean, we know about his sin. I mean, we even read about it in the paper. All of his business partners know about that. Say, now, he's a great sinner, but me, I'm not that bad. That's what we do. We want to relativize our sin. Jesus says, no. You're all great debtors. Say, so what's miraculous and marvelous is that there is a moneylender who forgives all the debt when you come to him. You know, one of the marks of a true church, which I do pray that we are a true church, is not to dampen, not to dampen the sin of our hearts and our lives, not to brush it over and for the pastor to say, you know, all of you are really great people and we don't really need that God that much, that there are much more notorious sinners than us and we're on the right track. We need Jesus just a little bit. You say that, sadly, is a false church. Say one of our tasks every Sunday is to go the opposite direction, <laughs> to say we are great sinners that we don't always comprehend. Everything in our culture wants to tell us that we're not 
that sinful and that we don't need God that much and that he's not bought us back at a very high price. Everything in the culture is that. Well, not at Providence Church. What we must see, we all owe a great debt that we've forgotten God, that we've gone our own way, that we've done things that we wish we, we didn't do. Say we, we go all the way back in our say, Lord, help us to remember that we owe a great debt, that we're sinful. Yeah, are there people that are probably more sinful than us? Absolutely, but we all owe something. But there is one who can forgive. And that's what Jesus wants Simon to see. Say, yeah, the woman, she's not lived a great life. But all of us have clenched our fist at God and gone our own way. And we need the forgiveness that is in Christ. Now, what happens then, wonderfully, do you love, do you love uh, verse 44? You say, you put yourself in the drama. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, right? So he turns to the woman, but he's speaking to Simon and basically says, this woman, Simon, is gonna teach you, the religious guy, the lesson that we need God's forgiveness. And what he says, verse 47, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, that's true, they are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, what's happening? I would say that's really the thrust. That's a key verse right there. What's he saying? You say, she's been forgiven much because she's loved much. Is Simon, or is Jesus saying, well, because of this act of devotion, that is, you know, weeping on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair, because she did this, Therefore, Jesus made a deal with her and said, you're forgiven. In other words, did she procure the forgiveness by her actions? You say, well, no, right? We learn from verse 50 that what saved her is her faith, her faith in the proclamation, right, that Jesus is the one who can forgive. Rather, what we're to see is that what she did for Jesus was an act of love because she had been forgiven. It'd be like me saying, you know, um, it's raining outside because the windows are wet. You say, none of you would take that to mean, well, that I think that the windows actually cause the rain. But you'd understand that in that statement, right, that the windows are wet as a consequence of the rain. That's what Jesus is saying here, that her act of love is a consequence of the fact that she realizes she's been forgiven much. And if we don't realize, right, what's the implication here is that if we don't comprehend what God has done for us in Jesus and has forgiven us much, then we have very little chance of loving. But rather, only when we grapple with the fact of how serious our transgressions are, how serious our iniquity, how all the things that we were, you know, we've elected not to remember, the things that we've tried to repress, all those things say God and Jesus has forgiven us. And when we dwell in that and think of it and rest in that, that should make us love him more and quite frankly, love each other more. You see, it flows out in awareness of sin to how great we've been forgiven, to how much we love. Those are connected. You say, how bad we'd be as a church, right? If fungus, you say, well, we're gonna blunt the end. And they say, we're not that serious of sinners. Therefore, we don't need to be forgiven that much. Therefore, we're not gonna love much. That the three are connected. What Jesus says is, oh, we all owe a debt. That we've been forgiven by Jesus. You need to comprehend that. And when we do, we're gonna love him so much. You know, this passage, I know there are some here talking to a man this morning in the first hour. There are some in here, you're still haunted by the terrible things you did many years ago. You say maybe even you know your 
family knows, your, those closest to you know, maybe there's some things that you did were in the press or whatever it was, and you say, I've really not fully comprehended the great truth of this passage. In other words, I think the key, the key point might be is that there's no sin where the grace of Christ can't cover. That you can't outpace, right? That, that the past sins of a person can't outpace the grace of Christ. You know, not to say, of course, the old uh, line of Rasputin in Romans 6. It's not saying here, well, let's just, you know, sin all the more so we can be forgiven more, so we can love more. That's not the point. But what it's saying is that there's nothing in our lives or in our past for which the blood of Christ cannot avail. See, I love the line from Fanny Crosby, right? The blind hymn writer. Remember this one? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. See, the vilest offender. So all that blaspheming you did back in college and all the time you misused your body and all the times that you swindled people, you say, is all that too great for the blood of Christ? Luke 7 says no. That Jesus' grace and forgiveness are bigger. So now often, again, where are you in the passage? Are you like the woman? You say, I'm just despairing that I've been, you know, in this pattern so far, so long in my life, everybody knows. You say, there's something offered in Jesus, just as you could imagine her when she heard the message for the first time of Jesus's forgiveness. You see, that comes to you today too, that you can turn to him, that you can repent of your sins, that you can be made right with God gloriously. Look at what this woman walks away with, right? That she's granted the forgiveness of her sins, that she's saved, and she's given the peace of God. You say, what a message that is. You say, why do we call it the good news of Jesus? You know, because of that, to say we can be made right with God, that we can be put right through him. Say, others of us, you say, I'm not so much like the woman, but I'm actually quite a lot like Simon. That I know God forgives, but not really. That I can be kind of impressed with Jesus, but actually I'm much more comfortable in my own self-righteousness. I don't really want to associate with those kind of people. And quite frankly, I don't love that much because I don't think I need to be forgiven that much because I'm a pretty decent guy. So in a way, that's very dangerous. Simon's attitude here is very dangerous, and quite frankly, in our congregation, that we are very prone to slipping into that kind of mentality. We're pretty good people. We got it all together. Don't need much forgiveness. Don't need much love. Emotional response to Jesus is just going to wig everybody out. I'm certainly not going to do that. Say, so do you see this woman? Does she win the day? She understands the forgiveness of God and consequently has loved much. Friends, all of this reminds me of that wonderful line in John chapter 6, right, where Jesus says, all who come to me, right, I will never cast them away. What he's saying is all those who come to Jesus in repentance to say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I need somebody who can make me whole. Say, he takes us in and sets us right forgives us and gives us peace and salvation. You know, as we prepare here in a moment, you know, today we take the Lord's Supper. You say the Lord's Supper is an enactment, right? It's a, a visible um, demonstration, right? It's a, it's, it's a symbol of this truth that we've just been talking about. Say, how can it be that the perfect Son of God would sacrifice, be sacrificed on the cross for me?
And it's a time for us to think and reflect about how serious our sin is, how much Jesus has saved us, and how much we should love him. So I'll invite Ian and the team back up as we allow this to soak in. Lord, what an extraordinary scene this must have been. Maybe this afternoon we can replay the dinner scene here. The put-together Pharisees intrigued by the teachings of Jesus and the woman who courageously humiliates herself by doing this act of respect for Jesus. Lord, help us to understand our need not to play the game of whether I'm the person that owes the 500 denarii or the 50 denarii, but to say, I I am a debtor. I am a debtor and I can't pay it back that I need to be freely forgiven. Is there such a one who does that? And to see in Jesus that that's exactly what you offer and that we can be put right. And that in so doing, Lord, that we would love you much to be a loving congregation, to respond to you with our emotions as well, but also to allow this to live out in our lives, that no one in our midst is too far gone. We don't want to have anyone who's one of those kind, but rather to say we've been forgiven much, therefore we love much. Lord, the glorious end of this passage, right, that in our faith, the faith in you, that you grant us then peace and salvation and forgiveness of sins. How glorious is that? So as we take this next song, the Courier eleison, the Lord have mercy, that we would again reflect on our own transgressions to reflect on the model of this woman so that Christ may be lifted high. In his name we pray, amen.